At Oakdale Community Church, if you're new here, one thing um, you have to know is that we don't shy away from negative emotions. We don't shy. We don't hide from the more painful parts of life. Um, we openly admit that sometimes life is hard, and that sometimes when life is hard, the only appropriate thing to do is lament. That's the godly thing to do. So I'm going to open this sermon um, this week with a personal lament. Which is this, my old memory goes something like this. There's nothing in the world worse than when your father-in-law is right. That is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen. 27 years ago, um, when Esther and I were first talking about moving into our first house, buying our first home, I was telling my father-in-law about it. And I was excited, and I was telling him I was excited to do my own home projects, and have my own yard, and organize my own garage, and I think I even went into a short discourse on the American dream. And he uh, stopped me and he goes, before you get too excited, let me just tell you one thing. And he looked me in my eye and he said, the more you own, the more it owns you. Which I brought to the The more you own, the more it owns you. And in the infinite wisdom of 20 years old, I think I rolled my eyes. And <coughs> just, you know, um, something like that. But uh, this week, my father-in-law was once again proven right. Um, Wednesday, busy week, I sure and I are are uh, both behind on Wednesday. We're hitting that point. We realize not everything that needs to happen this week is going to happen, so we're trying to discuss what's going to get bumped next week. And uh, Esther goes down to um, swap a new load of laundry. Um, and, okay, real quick, ADD moment. You guys know what the curse is? The curse of sin? You know, when Adam and Eve ate the apple and they were cursed. Anybody know what the real curse was? Laundry. laundry. Absolutely. They were naked before they ate the apple. And then you got to know, like, two weeks after the apple, you know, Eve is sitting there folding her fourth load of laundry, wondering how long okay and able to wear so many clothes in one week, swearing half of them didn't even get warm, and just kept on the floor for packing the laundry. And right about that time, you know, she's sitting there going, I didn't make a huge mistake. She's not eating that fruit. But, um, yeah, so Esther goes down to swap laundry, and she, uh, our sewer decided this was a great time to no longer drain. So we've got standing sewer water in our basement and uh, and our wheat that was already behind got completely hijacked and we went out and replaced off 50 feet of sewer line in our front yard uh, this week. So uh, my father-in-law was once again right. I don't own a home. My home owns me. I didn't get to look at my week and go, what do I want to do with this week? I have all this opportunity. No, I had no choice but to, uh, to do what my house told me needed to be done. So the reason I tell this story this morning is because we're going to talk about space. Um, not so much like outer space, although you guys know I love to talk about it as well. But like that space we want to call our own, our own space. We don't need to feel like we have something that's ours. And this is the thought that's reinforced constantly in Scripture. In fact, it kind of creates one of the fundamental tensions in the Bible because um, God is omnipresent, which just means He can be everywhere at the same time. And yet, um, He puts a huge emphasis in the Scripture on space, on, on meeting us in a particular place in time. Uh, so actually we're going to start today um, with some Jewish philosophy. If you're new here, um, you'll find out I like nerd out every once in a while, so I'm going to try not to make it too heavy. Zimzo, anybody ever heard of this? Good. To teach today. In the 16th century, a Jewish mystic philosopher um, named Isaac Luria uh, came up with this concept. He was uh, doing metaphysics as a philosopher, trying to figure out how in the world God could have created something when, at a time in history when God was the only thing that was, how did he create something that wasn't God, and where did he put it? If God was everywhere, where did he put this thing that wasn't God? And so he came up with this concept that later became known as symptom, 
which is the idea that God had to contract part of his presence to create a space whereby the universe could exist. Because when you're the only thing there is, there's not just like extra space, and you're like, hey, I'll just put it there. Like, you're the only thing there is. And so he would have had to have withdrawn some of his presence to give the universe autonomy, to give the universe um, a space that wasn't God. Otherwise, the universe would just be God. And then the scripture is, is very determined throughout the majority of the scripture to, to, to say the otherwise. That God is not pantheistic. He's, we can't look at a tree and go, that's God. We can't look at a, a river and go, no, that's, that's also God. Like, the Bible pushes against that kind of pantheism. And so, Lumina uh, theorized that maybe God kind of contracted his presence for the sake of offering autonomy to the universe. And this is not Bible, this is just a theory, this is just a philosophy um, that we're going to play with. But Adam and Eve, so we're told that God put them in a garden, a specific place. We're even told that he came in and walked with them in this place in the cool of the evening, that he met them in this specific place. And when they broke the homeowner association rules, they had to get out of And so there was a specific place that was important. And God said, you can no longer go to this place. And we got decided that he was going to change tactics on how he was going to reach the world. He called this man named Abraham. And he told Abraham, hey, you need to get up and leave your father's house or the Chaldeans and go to this land that I'm going to show you. Which begs the question, was God not in or the Chaldeans? Was he omnipresent? Was he not in Abraham's hometown? He told Abraham, get up and go so that I can do a work with you. God was consumed with this space, with this place that, that he would go. In fact, this is how he said it to him. He said, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. So why did God have to send him to a new space? Later, Abraham's descendants find themselves in Egypt, a place that they only went to so that they could save their own lives. We actually talked about this last week. And, this, and because they're not in their own space, because they're not in their own land, this huge drama plays out with Egypt and the ten plagues, and there's some great movies on it. Check one out. And then, so they leave the place they were to go to a new place, and they found out they had to wander for a bit because somebody was parked in their spot. And so they, they land themselves in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, just kind of wandering without a place. And while stuck in this no place, a couple of huge things happen. First is God shows up kind of really powerfully on a mountain. Uh, and it reads something like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud. Uh, I'll come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, uh, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day. And on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all his people watch. How can the Lord, who is everywhere, come down? Like, where is he that he has to come down on this mountain? He's going to reveal himself. To the people. The second big thing that happens while they're kind of wandering in this no place is that they create a worship space called the tabernacle. And it's basically this giant movable tent where the presence of God was more tangibly accessible than anywhere else. So the people would come out every morning and they would face the tabernacle. And the Bible says at night there was this like pillar of fire that would come down that people could see. And during the day there was this pillar of smoke that would give them shade and kind of a cloud. Um, and so something about this tabernacle drew the presence of God in a way that was unlike any other place. Even though God is omnipresent, 
he concentrated his presence in a place that was different. And this place was actually really, really particular. Um, Exodus 25 uh, says this, Be sure, this is talking about the tabernacle, that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. There have been times that I've sworn this was my life's so life verse today. I write a life verse. That verse is going to shape your life. Some people in John 3, 16, I think my wife said Exodus 25, 40, because, you know, when you're moving that house, she's like, move it to the left, move it to the right, no, back to the left, no, back to the right. I, I can hear in her head, it's got exactly according to the pattern I was shown on the mountain. And then she'll go, you know, let's try on the other side of it. Anyway, um, that's just my own little event. But in the Bible, God somehow shows Moses a blueprint for exactly how he wants the tabernacle. And Moses follows it. And this is especially fresh to me because um, though I cannot say God took us on a mountain and showed us how he wanted this building made, I will say that we, we took the convictions out of the community church that we believed um, and we took those to this building and was like, how can we make this building fit our convictions? Because when we bought this space, it looked like this. Anybody ever anybody here back then? The bright red carpet and the ugly pews. Yeah, and uh, and honestly, at the time we were in a, a you know a kind of a dated sanctuary. So even though it was it was dated, we we weren't turned off. We really looked like it had promise it'd be our own space, and we were interested. So we walked through, and we're definitely interested. And the problem was the entryway looked like this. That was the whole entryway, the whole foyer, and uh, and we um, since like one of our key values here is community and relationship and hanging out and getting to know people and, and doing life together, we couldn't imagine how we could um, make that happen here. So even though you know, we were totally into the red carpet, um, we couldn't find a way that the entryway uh, could work. So we envisioned this. We actually drew that you know, 10, 11 months ago. We saw the coffee station on the left when you walked in. We even saw little round tables, windows, double doors. Is it crazy how close that came out? We even saw like a little welcome shelf, but Dale built us a way cooler one. I don't know if you guys have seen that out there. Yeah, we pictured this, and we, we drew it and talked about it 10 months ago. Joy even taught me originally the, the doors in that big open spot between the two things, and Joy taught me to follow it open, which I was grumpy with at the time, but it looks way better that way. Um, we came with this space, which means the sanctuary is going to be shrunk down a little bit. But we didn't want open table to be just about a, a sanctuary where you go to have church. We want it to be just about a church service. We want it to be about a relationship, a fellowship. And so we uh, drew this uh, 10 months ago. Isn't it nuts how close we got? Like, it's crazy how close we got to what we drew so long ago. I mean, you know, the remember this started, uh, oh, that was downstairs. Uh, downstairs was just dramatic, I'll show you that. So that was the original kind of basement looking space. And uh, and we drew that way back then. Parents' room and the elementary room, and we even envisioned the cabinet they all built for us. Added that bathroom down the bottom part. If I could, I'd rotate and show you the kitchen. It's going to be someday. But I'm definitely not saying God, like, showed us a mountain, took us on a mountain and showed us, but we did feel like we had a vision of what we wanted, what we needed to fulfill our vision for church and relationship. And I tell you this for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, 
just to brag again on how amazing everything turned out. But number two, and more importantly, is 10 months ago, I showed our church these pictures. And I said, this is what we want to do. If you'll, you know, pray and give, you know, we can build this. And if you... If you're new here, you're going to find out real quick. I don't like talking about money. I'm really bad at it. And so uh, I actually stood up for a whole series and asked for money, which is really uncomfortable for me. I don't do that well. Um, But I said, if you'll give, if you'll you'll join in, we can build this thing. And we did. God uh, provided. You guys gave. Some of us worked. Some of us worked way too hard now. And we built something um, amazing uh, for our church. So what does this mean? What's what's in a space? Why does God tell Moses to build a tabernacle? Does does having a place mean that God's presence is any different or any easier to access than any other space? This word is tricky. See, after God um, seemed to concentrate all of his presence in this tabernacle, he told his people it was time to go into their own land, to go into the promised land. It was a very specific land. He gave them very specific boundaries and and said, this is the land I'm giving you. Like, something in the space was important. Something in the location was important. And not long after that, they had a king named David. Anybody ever heard of David? Yeah. We've been talking about David all summer, um, if you're new here. So that's uh, where that is, actually. Um, (laughs) David knew that God was everywhere. David might have known better than anybody else that God was omnipresent. He had maybe the clearest writing on it in all the scripture. When he says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. David was probably the best writer on the omnipresence of God, that God follows us everywhere. And yet David was consumed with this idea that God had no house that David built himself a palace. He had kind of moved into this new space, and he was, it was driving him crazy that God didn't have a space. And so David got this vision to build God a temple. God needs a place to be. God needs a space for himself. And because of David's uh, kind of busy, warring, warrior life, it, it didn't turn out where David got to go, but he stopped out all materials because of his vision he had of this house for God. And his son Solomon actually got to build it. And Solomon built this amazing temple with the stuff his dad had kind of stored up. And there came a point where they kind of dedicated it. They had this kind of dedication service where they got him prayed. And it says the Spirit of God filled up the temple so powerfully that the priests couldn't even stay in it anymore. They had to like crawl out because the presence of God in the temple was so powerful. Something about this space was super powerful to God. And again, this is only philosophy, but this is why I love the idea of symptom. This is why I love this kind of Jewish mystic philosophy is because uh, it maybe answers the question as to how God's presence can concentrate in one place at one time. But he's kind of, for the sake of offering us autonomy, offering us free will and, and the ability to, to be individuals, he has to kind of withdraw his presence a little bit, which allows him in a chosen time step to concentrate it and to, to maybe unwithdraw it, uncontract it, however you want to say that. Um, so his presence is more concentrated in some places at some times. I mean, isn't it ironic that the God who is everywhere demands over and over in Scripture that we that we meet Him face to face, that we treat Him individually. He doesn't want us to think He's an idea or a concept. He doesn't want us to, 
to see him in pieces of wood and think that somehow we can worship this piece of wood and it's kind of the same thing as worshiping God. He stands against that through all scripture, almost as though he's saying, I am me. I am a person. Don't me. Don't, don't wash me out to be everywhere and in everything. Like, I, I, I want you to be, even though he is everywhere and in everything, he constantly asks us not to meet him that way. He constantly asks us to engage him individually. And it gets so um, so focused that eventually he shows up. Eventually he comes in the person of Jesus. All of the all of the majesty of the Son of God concentrated in one person in one point in history, in one place. All the presence of God. Paul said that in him all the fullness of the God had dwelt bodily. That in, in one person, it was almost like he was saying, So much I want you to see me as an individual and not just a, a vague presence that I'll come as an individual and you will engage me as a person. And when Jesus got here, the sewers were backed up. I mean, we made a mess. Our sin made a mess all over the floor. And Jesus, unlike me, didn't have to engage it. He didn't have to step into the mess and take care of it. He could have left us. He could have stayed in heaven and said, you know what, you made your mess. Deal with it. But he didn't. He engaged. He got into it with us. He arrived. He descended into our mess. He lived the life we couldn't live and died to death. He should have died and rose again so we could have been of life. And this time God wasn't just uh, this big idea. He was a, a person. He was a human being. Not long after he rose, Jesus sent his followers to another space a particular space, a particular time, and said, go to this place and wait for me. I'm going to show up. And he did, he did show up. And this time it was different, because this time he wasn't walking in a garden, and this time he wasn't uh, hovering over a tabernacle, and this time he wasn't filling up a temple. This time when he came, he, he did it different. He filled his people. This time everything had changed, because it wasn't just this presence that that hovered that you could see and access. This time, the Bible says when he showed up in the book of Acts, he filled up his people. So here's the thing. This is amazing. I love this building. I love uh, I love the way it turned out. And there's nothing special about this building. This building is just a building. I've been here in the middle of the week and it's just a building. It's cool, but it's just a building. But when we gather here on Sundays, it's different. It's different than the building. Because when you guys are not here, the presence of God is not here in any special way or different than the other time. But when we show up, the presence of God comes with us because the presence of God dwells in us. That's what's unique about being us. Paul, Paul put it this way in the Corinthians, don't you know? And then like, you can insert like the most shocked tone you can come up with. Don't you know? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says that like, how can you not get this? Don't you realize you are the temple? You don't have to go there anymore. You don't have to go to the temple. You are the temple. That doesn't mean that in exchange, doesn't mean that God's zoom zoom presence isn't more concentrated in some places than other places. It just means His presence concentrates His people in us. His, His presence is when we gather together. We concentrate more of the presence of God with us. So when we come into this space, the building suddenly becomes far more living. 
How do we respond to this? First, um, though God is omnipresent, though He's everywhere, don't, don't engage in that way. Like, it, it doesn't do us any good. Like, recognize God as, as a person addressing that way. Talk to Him that way. Like, engage God like an individual. That's how He constantly, through the Scripture, calls us to engage Him. Not as this vague presence of goodness, not as this vague idea or concept of, of love, or not a, you know, this principle of holiness, rightness, and wrongness, but a, a person, a, 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 a real personality. Talk to God like a person, expecting to answer like a person. And second, we have to recognize that our presence changes things. As the people of God, our presence changes things. Never did the presence of God in the Old Testament show up in, in any of these stories I tell you without it being like a huge deal, without it like rocking. The reason they got recorded was because they were such a huge deal. Like the reason somebody wrote this thing down, you know, is because they were huge. The presence of God just showed up in an amazing way and people would record that because that was a big deal. I don't think that's changed. I think when the people of God show up, things are supposed to change. Things are supposed to be different. It's supposed to be dramatic. That's the pattern of all of Scripture, is that when the presence of God shows up, it's dramatic. When God showed up at the mountain, the people were terrified. They actually told Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. That was too much. You be, you stand in the middle. Let God talk to you, you'll talk to us. If we want to talk to God, we'll talk to you first. That was too much. That was huge. So when God decided to fill his people with the Holy Spirit, I think it was supposed to be the same way, dramatic. When the people of God take the presence of God places, it's huge. The presence of God changes things. When we walk into a room, the presence we take with us should have an effect on that room. It should change things. When a group of us gather together and we drink coffee and we sing songs and we study the scripture together, that should change things. We should not leave the same. The presence of God always changes things. Moms and dads, you parent with the presence of God. That, that's, that's different. You're not just trying to survive toddlers, although some days it feels like that. It does feel like that. We're, we're building kingdom warriors. We're building kids who, who should go into the world different, who should know that they have an impact, that they're advancing the kingdom of God. They're, they're here to change things. Our marriages. With the presence of God, it means we should be able to show more love and more grace to one another. We should be able to, to build each other up and strengthen each other in a way that is different. When we go to work, we're ambassadors for the kingdom. We should, we should carry a different presence with us. And not that we're elite, we're not. Any more than an empty building is elite. Like we're just we're just the building, but with the presence of God, things change. Don't take God lightly. Don't you know you are this temple? All of a sudden, don't you realize you are the temple? See yourself as a force for good in the world. A force for God in the world. Understand that you have the ability to bring the presence of God with you. And that's, that changes things. Realtors say there's only three things that are important in selling a house. Location, location, location. I think God would agree. If, 
if Larry is right and he withdrew his presence so he could create, then in that space he created, he chose specific locations to allow his presence back in, to allow his presence back in. He chose a garden, he chose a tent, he chose a land, he chose a temple, and he chose us. He chose his people as a place to, to invest his presence to change the world. He chose you and he chose me. Let's go to the Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you went to the cross. And when you went to the cross, everything changed. No longer was your presence out there somewhere. But suddenly you decided to fill your people. You decided to, to change the entire dynamic. You said in the Old Testament that you would we would no longer have to go seeking for the truth because we would put the truth in us. Write it in our hearts. So Jesus, I pray that you would fill us. And then being filled with the Spirit, we would recognize that we have an impact on this world. We're only going to be taking presence with us. That should change the way we do things. It should change the way we, we love people and, and, and welcome people and, and show grace and, and mercy to people. We no longer have to do it in our strength. So make us mindful, Jesus, of your presence. That's not something we're chasing, it's something that you given to us to share with others. Yes, this is Jesus' name.